2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look this morning at a passage uh, that, to be honest with you, is a little bit uh, troubling and uh, unsettling as we, as we look at it this morning. Part of the difficulty is what we see happen and occur in the passage, but part of it is what we see happen after the passage is over uh, as life continues on uh, after a mistake and after a time of difficulty. And here's the thing. I think if we misunderstand the point or the existence of our lives and we misunderstand it by thinking it's about us, then this passage is gut-wrenching. I mean, it, it, it's a game and life changer if the focus of life is about us. But if we recognize and remember and rightly understand that the point of our lives isn't us, we're not the center of the universe, then this passage can be refreshing, it can be encouraging, and it can be an incredible passage of hope for us as God's children, even as God's imperfect children. You see, God has a lot of attributes that we read about in Scripture, a lot of names, a lot of titles, a lot of different characteristics. And I'll be the first to tell you that I better understand some of God's character, His nature, some of His attributes better than others. You know, I, I think I, like many people, probably resonate a little bit more with God's justice. Maybe not resonate, but better understand and can identify with God's justice. I mean, God poured out his justice. God poured out his judgment against sin and against people in the Bible who had done wrong. I mean, we see that. I mean, to look at Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, who had everything perfect. It was taken care of. They were there in God's presence and they dropped the ball. You know, they sinned and introduced sin into the world and, you know, ruined it for the rest of us, for all of creation. And what happened? Well, there was pain in childbirth, there was toil in their labor, and there was strife in their marriage. Well, they may have got off easy for ruining it for everybody else, you know. I mean, I can look at it and say, well, they deserve some kind of punishment for what they did. You know, we look and we see that fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and we say, well, the wicked city refused to repent. They were given time. They were given opportunity. They wouldn't repent. So, yeah, we can see God's justice, God's judgment being poured out upon them. You know, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because they complained and they grumbled against God and they didn't trust him going into the promised land. And in that 40 years, they continued to grumble and complain and mumble and whine and moan and mope and all this. And I'm like, Lord, how did you put up with them for 40 years? They'd have been lucky to have gotten through 40 days, you know, if I were calling the shots up there. I mean, they, just, they, they wandered in just this constant, uh, you know, discord and dis, uh, disgruntled nature against God. Uh, you know, God's so much more patient than I am. You think about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts who lied to God about their giving and their offering and how much money they were bringing to God. And we say, well, they had it coming to them. I mean, they lied to God. They were deceitful in front of the whole church and Peter's there and everybody. So yeah, we can see why God would strike them down and would kill them right there. So I think we can grasp God's justice and his judgment. And, and we see, and we understand those things. I get God's justice, but you know what baffles me sometimes? God's grace, God's grace. I mean, I can see, I can identify with his justice, but this grace stuff, I mean, think about Peter. Peter denied, or Peter uh, walked with Jesus, followed him, saw his miracles, saw his teachings. Then Peter denied Jesus, but then Peter got to preach Jesus again, didn't he? At the end and got to be a leader in the early church. Okay, follow Jesus, deny Jesus, and you get to preach Jesus again. Think about Jonah. You know, God said, go, Jonah said, no. Okay, I'll go the other way. 
God said, whoa, and put him in the belly of a fish down below. Then Jonah said, okay, I'll go. And God said, yeah, I thought so. (laughs) Sound like Dr. Seuss this morning, don't I? I mean, here's Zacchaeus, swindler, a liar, a cheat. And of all the people who were coming to see Jesus come to town, Jesus got to go and Zacchaeus had to have Jesus over as his lunch guest. Of all the people, Zacchaeus, the cheat, the swindler. Well, maybe Jesus knew he had enough money to pay for lunch. And, you know, I don't know, you know how, how that worked out. But, but Zacchaeus was the one who got to experience uh, that, that time with Christ. And then think about King David, who we're going to look at this morning. David, he was the guy who saw the amazing grace of God. David was a psalmist, writing songs, singing songs about God. Then he was a voyeur. Then he was an adulterer. Then he was a murderer. But he ended up being a psalmist again. You say, well, well, how does that work? I mean, is that fair to go through that progression and still wind up having the things that were said about David be said about him? This month, we've been looking at lessons learned from uh, the courageous movie from some Old Testament characters, and they're raised on themes that we see in the courageous movies. And in that movie, many of you saw it, one of the characters in the movie uh, made some poor choices, and he told a friend, he said, I let go of the wheel. And he tells his friend, he says, don't ever let go of the wheel. Don't ever let go of the wheel. From his pain, his heartbreak, his his experience, he told his friend, don't ever let go of the wheel. So I think it's very appropriate then that we would look at David's life to see a period, to see a point in his life when David let go of the wheel. And it begins in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it starts right off the bat. We see the problem in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, who was his uh, commander for his army, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So you may read that verse and go, well, well, what's the problem? David delegated to his general who who took the army and they went out and they fought a battle. They won the battle uh, and David himself didn't have to go to war. I mean, you'd call that good leadership, maybe not a bad decision. You could think that, but you would be wrong. Because the truth is this. Don't send someone else to do your God-given duty. Don't send someone else to do your God-given duty. It was the king of Israel's responsibility to lead and motivate and direct his army. Now, obviously, generally the king wasn't out on the front lines of battle, but nonetheless, he was there uh, to make decisions and to give instruction to his generals, to his men, to encourage them, to motivate uh, those who were fighting. That was the king's duty and responsibility. You may remember we talked a little bit about God and and Samuel telling the the nation of Israel, you don't want a king, it's not gonna turn out well. They said, yes, we do. Well, part of the king's duty was to be there with his army, to motivate, to lead his men. And the odd thing about this is that this had been David's practice. This was nothing new to David. David was a hands-on, in the thick of the battle type leader. And he always had been. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. uh, And his first big victory came when he defeated who? 
Goliath. You remember that story? David took the stones and just needed one to kill Goliath and be able to lop off his head so they could beat the Philistines. I mean, David won that victory. Uh, And he was a leader in Saul's army until Saul uh, got so jealous of David that he tried to have him killed and tried to have him executed. So David had to go on the run. And in the time that David was on the run, he kind of led a small army kind of a special forces type group, if you will, who carried out military uh, actions against warring nations and still fought for the nation of Israel, although they couldn't do it under the leadership of Saul because Saul wanted to kill David. So David was always with his men and he never shied away from a fight and his men respected him and his men fought valiantly because David was always there with them in the heat of battle. He understood this. He knew this concept, but yet here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he stayed back in Israel, or stayed back in Jerusalem while the nation of Israel went to war. But you see, the most important aspect of a king's leadership, as God had designed it, was to seek God's will. He was to seek God's will as the king and say, Lord, do you want us to go into this battle? Is this the right time for us to attack? attack? How do you want us to attack? Lord, what should we do? And again, we see this pattern in David's life. On numerous occasions, David went to the Lord and said, Lord, what's next? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to handle this? And God would tell David and give him instructions, direct him as to what he should do. And they always achieved the victory because of his obedience and his following God's will and God's instruction to him. So if nothing else, if nothing else, that was enough reason for David to be with his men, to pray and ask God what they should do. But David let go of the wheel. He wasn't there. He wasn't with his men. He wasn't leading them. And many people suffered as a result of that one decision to let someone else go and do his God-given duty. And let me just get straight to the point on one application of this truth this morning, although there are many that could be made. Parents, it is your God-given responsibility to deliver your children into adulthood with their faith, their values, their morals, and their spiritual and emotional development grounded in God's word and centered on Jesus Christ. Let me say that again, parents, so that you understand the full scope of what I just said. Parents, it is your God-given responsibility to deliver your children, these kids that we just saw up here singing, to deliver them into adulthood with their faith, their values, their morals, and their spiritual and emotional development grounded in God's word and centered, focused on Jesus Christ. There is no substitute, none for the role that you play in the development of your children. You cannot send them to a school system, even a Christian school system, and expect them to do the job of teaching your children right and wrong. Do not expect a children's pastor to do the work of grounding and instilling in your child's heart a hunger for God's word and teaching them how to regularly practice spiritual disciplines. It is not your Sunday school teacher's role to teach your children biblical, moral, and ethical values. And our student ministry is not an assembly line where you deposit your middle schooler and then at graduation go and pick up a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ while you just sit on the sidelines and write checks and deliver them where they need to be. It doesn't work that way. 
Now, those individuals and those places can help, but that is their job to help, to assist, to reinforce what you are saying and doing in your home, not to do the job for you. They help and assist, not take your responsibility and your role and do it for you. If you think that's the case, and I just want to say this to you, the clue phone is ringing and parents, it is for you. It is your job. It is your God-given duty. And if you trust other people and other institutions to take that God-given role that you have as a Christian parent, then it's likely that bad things are going to happen, just like it did in David's situation when he gave his God-given role over to someone else. And I get pretty fired up when I hear parents say, well, I don't want to push my religious beliefs or my thoughts on little Johnny or little Susie. I want him or her to make their own decisions about issues of faith. I believe that is spiritual abuse for you to cop that attitude and have that philosophy and that thought and that idea. Because parents, if you do not teach them and instruct them, then someone or something will. And for you to not teach them and lay a spiritual foundation and focus their hearts and their thoughts and their life on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truths found in God's word and to live their lives in obedience to it, for you to not equip them, you are sending them into a lion's den with raw meat tied to them to go out into this world with no foundation, with with no uh, mooring, with no uh, direction at all whatsoever in this world. How are they going to find their way if you don't give them instruction and teaching and guide them in the ways and the truths of God's word? God says you are the one to teach biblical truths that they need to survive in life and to live a full and abundant life that Jesus desires for them as they walk through life. But perhaps the biggest issue here, I think for us, is that many parents aren't convinced of these truths themselves. That's why they don't teach them because it's not something that's settled in their own hearts, in your heart and in your spirit. Parents, you need to nail that down. Get it right in your life, in your heart, in your spirit so you can teach it, so you can instill it, so you can model it for your children. Now, I'll get off the soapbox in just a second, but the issue here is what I said it was in week number one that we see really in the courageous moving in the lives of these men that we've looked at for this month. It's an issue of priorities. It's all about an issue of priorities. And so I ask you again this morning, what are your priorities? And here's the thing. Don't just tell me what your priorities are because I know you're going to say the right things. It's not about what you say your priorities are. What are they in practice? What would other people say are your priorities by what they see and observe and watch and hear from your life, from your actions, and from what you display? I think courageous hit a collective nerve with parents because all too often we realize that we're not the parents that God has called us to be. And we try to settle with just being good enough. And there was a character in the movie that said, I don't want to be just a good enough parent. And I resonated with that. I don't want to be just a good enough parent. I want to be a godly parent. I want to be a a biblical parent. I want to be pleasing to God in my role as a parent. And if the world looks at me like I have three heads because Shelly and I are making decisions as we try to be those kind of parents, then big deal. 
Because here's the thing, we're not going to stand and give an account one day to a jury of our unsaved peers. We're going to stand before a holy, righteous, pure, perfect heavenly father. And I want to do my best to hear him say of this area of all of my life, but particularly this area, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because you know what God tells me in scripture? That I am the only husband to this woman right here and to these children who are here. I'm the only father that they have. And I'm the only one who can fulfill that role. Jesus said, I will build my church, but he's called me to build and invest and lead my family. And the same is true for you as well. He's called you to lead and to be obedient and to be faithful in this task and this role that he's given to you. And that starts when we accept responsibility for doing what God calls us and only us to do in our lives. And, you know, this applies in our families and it applies in our jobs. It applies in our neighborhoods and our relationships that we build with our neighbors. And it applies in this church. Here's the thing. God has called you and gifted you and placed you in this body of believers to serve him. And some of you are slacking. You're slacking, you're spectators sitting idly by and watching others do the work and the service and fulfill the role that God has called you to fulfill. And God is saying, get off the sidelines, get in the game, be faithful and do what I've called you to do. Use what I've given you to use for my glory, for my sake, for the sake of the gospel. Here's the thing, if you're not in God's will, then where are you? When we do opposites, we do black and white. We do hot, we do cold. We do in and out. If you're not in God's will, then you're outside of God's will. And David stayed in Jerusalem when he should have been on the battlefield. Well, what happened? Why is that such a big deal? Look at verse two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. I guess the soap operas went off. He's on the couch watching all afternoon. He's on the late afternoon on his couch, you know, hanging out, just chilling. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman, it just so happened, was very beautiful. Do I even need to finish the story? I mean, you read this verse, you see these words and go, oh, I know where this is going. All right, I mean, we, we totally see, it's like a train wreck beginning to happen in slow motion. But here's the thing, if David had been where he was supposed to be, this temptation wouldn't have been set before him. And that's an important truth for us to remember. When you step out of God's will, you immediately put yourself in a place where you are more susceptible to temptation. When you step out of God's will, you put yourself in a place where you are more susceptible to temptation. Now, granted, we're always susceptible to temptation. I'm not saying there's a unsusceptible spot and a, and a more susceptible, but I kind of liken it to this. I mean, think about insect repellent. You know, you go, if you're going to go outside after dark in the summer, what do you expect you're going to have to deal with? Biting insects. Mosquitoes, deer flies, I don't even know the name of those, the biting gnats or whatever. Y'all got all kinds of stuff around here. I mean, they, just, they, they just light you up all the time. Uh, but if you step outside in the summer, you expect you're going to have to contend with these things. And if you go outside without insect repellent, what do people say to you? You're on your own, dude. All right? Why would you? But when you put insect repellent on, you repel them, right? A little bit more. 
You, you, prevent, you put a, a layer of preventiveness there. Now, do they not attack you because they go, oh, he's got insect repellent. I'm going to go away. No, they don't stop. They look for another spot, you know, around your collar. Maybe you miss, you know, something on the back of your arm or whatever. I mean, they're still looking. They're trying to find this spot where you don't have that insect repellent on. They don't give up, but you've helped protect yourself a little bit more. And when you walk in a relationship with God and the fullness of the relationship that you're called to with Jesus Christ and you're filled with the Holy Spirit as Paul instructs us to be, there's a greater resistance and it's harder for Satan to find that opportunity and find that place where he can come and he can attack. He's still going to attack and you're still gonna be susceptible, but you're even more so when you're not walking with God and when you're not in the center of his will where he's called you to be. So verse three, we pick up the story. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And in our mind, we go, David, don't do it. Don't do it, David. But someone says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And again, our minds are going, no, no, stop, David. Think about what you're doing. Don't do it. Call your accountability partner. Take a cold shower. Do whatever you have to do. David, don't do it. Don't have this woman come just so you can say, hey, what's your name? Because it's not going to stop with what's your name. Get away, run. Bells are going off and whistles and we've got all these horns that are sounding. Saying, David, this is not good. But it says, and she came to him and he lay with her. And then look at verse five. And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I I'm pregnant. Right there, five verses. Let me wrap this up so we can talk for a minute. David, getting this news, has her husband, a soldier in his army who's doing his job, sent home. And David goes under the guise of, hey, tell me how things are going out on the battlefield. How are you guys doing? So Uriah gives a report of how things are going on the battlefield. And David says, I'll go home, get some rest, and we'll send you back out here in the next couple of days. Hoping he was going to go home and spend the night with his wife. And so they could say, well, look, we, we have a child now. But Uriah, a loyal soldier, said, I'm not going to go home and enjoy the comforts of my home when my men are out suffering on the field. Don't you think David felt about this tall? When he heard that report, isn't that the way it goes when you're in sin and when you're not doing right, God always highlights people who are doing right. And you go, oh yeah, okay. Oh, I just think that just kind of just oh, ran all over David to, to, to hear that. So David then realizing that this wasn't going to happen, resorts to plan B. So he writes a letter and he sends to his commander, Joab, and he says this, put Uriah at the point of the, the most intense uh, fighting and battle out here and then withdraw from him. So in essence, David orders his murder. David orders him to be killed in the course of battle. And then here's the thing. He had Uriah deliver his own assassination letter. Hey, Uriah, take this back to Joab. And the guy's got such a high level of integrity, he didn't even read it. How do we know he didn't read it? Because he went back to battle and he gets killed. I mean, if you're carrying this message, I was the kid who would always sneak to find my Christmas presents. You know, I mean, I know they're here somewhere, so I'm going to go find them. I'm not a big surprise sort of person. So I'm going, what did David write to Joab? You know, I'm unrolling the scroll, you know, looking through. I wonder if I can get in here and see, put Uriah in the front of the line and have him killed. 
I'm going to go live with the Philistines, you know, type deal. I mean, but he delivers the letter and he gets killed. He gets assassinated out here. And your, uh, Joab sends a word back to David, tells him that uh, he was killed. David took Bathsheba as his wife. She had the baby and everything appears to be fine, except for one little sentence at the end of verse 27. It says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's an important sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Long story short, God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke David for what he did and to pronounce the punishment that would happen because of this. First of all, the baby would die, and indeed, the baby died. Secondly, he was told that one of his sons, one of David's sons, would try to take over his throne. He would disgrace his father and his entire family by taking David's wives to himself and and sleeping with them. And it happened. But in addition to that, there was strife and disharmony in David's family for the rest of his life. Always turmoil, always tension, always conflict because of this episode, this scene in his life. Now, I kicked you in the teeth earlier, so I want to try and build you back up a little bit this morning. I don't want you to leave on a doggy downer, but I do hope you leave this morning with a little fire in your belly. You know, we don't live by emotion, but emotions are important because emotions can motivate us to, to do the right thing that we need to do sometimes. But here's the deal. David let go of the wheel, and it cost him, it cost his family, it cost the nation of Israel dearly. And I stated that, you know, I think we can resonate, we can identify with God's justice, but, but that his grace, you know, baffles me and we kind of scratch our head. And here again, David was a psalmist, then he was a voyeur, then he was an adulterer, then he was a murderer. And then he becomes a psalmist once again, who, who wrote songs and poems about God that, that were printed and read and memorized and sung about and talked about and preached about for thousands and thousands of years. How does that work? How do you go through this failure, this mess up, and still have this legacy that lives on for thousands and thousands of years of being faithful to God. It works because of Jesus. It works because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us to give us a right relationship and a right standing with God to be used by God for God's purposes and not our own. David was, and we too need to be forgiven of our sins. And David was forgiven of those sins through Jesus Christ. And here's the descriptions about David we see in the Bible. The Bible says that David, it calls him a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And those words were spoken before David was anointed king. God, knowing this was going to happen, spoke to Samuel and said, I want you to go and anoint David, a man after my own heart. Really? Knowing what's going to happen, God, you're still calling him that? And in the book of Acts, Luke writes and says this about David, that David served the purpose of God in his own generation and died, served the purpose of God in his own generation and died. Those are significant statements. Those are memories. Those are, those are legacy statements that define and help us remember who David is and what David was about and what David's life, uh, what happened in David's life. Here's the thing. David's sin didn't define his life. David's sin didn't define his legacy. His repentant heart called him to be a man after God's own heart. The good news for us this morning is that your sin, your temptation, your struggle doesn't have to define your life. 
because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you and God's desire to use you and to forgive you and to have you be one of his children. As long as you are alive and as long as God is seated upon his throne, there is hope for you in your life and your circumstances. Let's look at a couple of things that David wrote in the book of Psalms. Look with me to at Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. when you know this about David and you see what he's come through to read some of these words, it's it's so refreshing and encouraging. David says, I waited patiently, verse one, Psalm 40, verse one. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David said, all that I went through, I'll sing and I'll speak and I'll share with others because of what God has done, how God rescued me, how God put me on a new secure path where my feet are secure. And people, when they hear this story, when they hear what God has done, they will put their trust in the Lord as well. Flip over to Psalm 51. You need to read this entire Psalm. Maybe tonight, I encourage you, if you get a few minutes to sit down with your family, you all read through this entire Psalm, but I just want to read a couple of verses. Psalm 51 is written after Nathan came and rebuked David. After he came and told him uh, what he had done, that God was not pleased with it. Psalm 51 is about that. It's a great, great chapter to see David's heart and his response to what had taken place of this chapter in his life. But verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, by the way, is the branch that they used to lift up the sponge to Jesus when he was hanging upon the cross. And so David says, purge me, cleanse, wash, uh, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I mean, David's being honest that, man, this sin hurt. It caused pain. It was difficult. It was hard that you talk about bones that were broken. Verse nine, high Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And then look at this verse, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, beautiful words of God's deliverance and his power to forgive and to heal uh, and, and to let David be an example for Christ. David basked in God's forgiveness and then he did the most important thing that any believer can do. He gave God the glory. He gave God the glory. And I want you to grasp this truth. This is so important for us to understand. God saves you, not for you not for your benefit, not for your happiness, not for the purpose of you going to heaven. We have picked up this life is about me, therefore salvation is about me mentality in the church that is just not biblical. It's not that our salvation is for us. We are saved, we are forgiven, we are set free from sin in order to glorify God. It's about him that we are delivered. It's about him that we are saved. It's about him that we are forgiven of our sins. Flip back to Psalm chapter 23, one of the most famous uh, passages in the entire Bible, uh, most quoted. 
Uh, it's those picture frame verses you see all over the, the houses or people's walls in their homes. Psalm 23 shows us and reiterates this point that what God does is not for our benefit. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So you may look at that and say, well, it looks kind of like it's me focused there. You know, he, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's all kind of our benefit there. But look at verse three. He leads me in paths of righteousness for what? For his name's sake. Not my name, not your name, but his name. You see, our life should be about God, not about us. The point of the Bible is God, not us. It's the point. That's the focus and what we should live our lives for. And our society, our culture is growing increasingly hostile and violent over some of the dumbest things. Are you guys seeing this? About a month ago, Facebook changed their format and what they were doing. And I laughed all day long, out loud at times, at how ridiculous people were being over a free program and how somebody monkeyed with what they knew had taken place. I mean, I felt bad for their designers. I thought they were going to get lynched. You know, I'm like, dude, if I were a designer for Facebook, I wouldn't be telling anybody today that I work for them. It was crazy, the, the venom and the fury and the rage that was poured out against them. But I mean, seriously, are you seeing this growing, seething anger that just constantly simmers underneath the surface and then, and then rears its ugly head in, in various ways in our society? I mean, do you see that? I think it comes from one word, entitlement. Entitlement. The growing majority of people in our nation in particular feel like they're the center of the world, the center of the universe, and people owe them certain things. And if they don't get those certain things that they think they are, they are owed or that they have possession to or a right to, then there's a price and there's a penalty to pay. We have this thing called road rage. Why do we call this road rage? I saw in our news, there's a thing of road rage. What happens there? Somebody cuts somebody off in traffic. They do something while they're driving. Maybe they do it intentionally, or maybe they're just a clueless driver. There are those in the world. They're not out to, to ruin anybody's life. They're just not paying attention, all right? But these people, they do things, cut somebody off. They're like, I was here first. You think you're better than me because you got in front of me in traffic? Well, let me show you what I'm going to do. And we have road rage. Are you kidding me? Where's that anger and that fury come from? And it's not just on the road. It happens in the grocery store. You laugh because you know it happens in the grocery store. We wait in line and if we think they don't serve or wait on us fast enough, we're mad, aren't we? I'm here. I got places to go. I got things to do. You take care of me and you do it in the time I expect. If not, then I'm aggravated. I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm going to let you know as I look in a scowl at you. <laughs> or I make comments underneath my breath. How many of you have done this? That You know it's bad when you do this. You watch a fake you get in another line and you see if you're through before they are. And if they beat you, you are hacked off. You're mad. You're kicking the dog when you get home. Your wife and your kids are, you know, getting the, the, the brunt of your frustration, your anger. Your wife's like, what's wrong with you? I got out of the grocery line second from the fake me today. She's like, you did what? 
mean, there's this, this anger, this frustration that just is constantly there. And don't get me started about what happens in the church when things don't go, go according to our taste or our preference or, or our opinion. I mean, of all people and of all places, those in the church should know better. But you see, the gospel isn't about us. Understand that the gospel isn't about us. It's about Jesus and it's about the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's our mission. That's our purpose. That's why we're saved. Not to make a big deal about us, but to make a big deal about Jesus. So the people will hear what he's done and they'll say, I want that. I need that. And we can say, hey, let me tell you how you can experience that, how you can receive that, how you can know that in your own life. David let go of the wheel and he crashed and he burned and you've let go of the wheel too. And you're going to let go of the wheel in the future. But even though that's happened or even though that will happen and may happen in your life, I want you to know that you can do this. You can come to Jesus, come to Jesus and experience his forgiveness and allow him to do his work of healing and cleansing your broken and your sin-filled heart and giving you a new heart, a pure heart like David's that desires one thing above all else. And that's to give God the glory and the honor that he deserves. Church, it pains me to know that this morning Satan has beaten some of you down. He's told you that you're useless, that you're hopeless, that you can't be used of God because of how you let go of the wheel or because of what's happened in your life. Now, don't answer this out loud, but I say to you this morning, have you committed adultery? Did you cap off that adultery by having an innocent person killed to cover over your adultery? All right, well, you haven't got to the point that David was at and God used David in a great way and God can use you when you experience his forgiveness and you devote and you set your heart to following after him. This morning, I want you to know and I want you to experience God's grace. We may understand and we grasp his justice, but we're baffled by his grace. But you know what? God doesn't want you just to know about his grace. He wants you to experience his grace. He wants it to be real in your life, to be powerful in your life. And so I want to invite you this morning to do just that. Experience the grace of God by giving your heart and your life totally and completely to Jesus Christ. Admitting your sin, acknowledging it, turning away from it so that you can be forgiven, be restored. You can have the joy of the salvation that David spoke of in Psalm 51 in your life. And you can begin living your life faithfully for Christ. And finally, this morning, as we come to our time of, of commitment, a time of, of surrender, then I want to challenge you to fulfill your God-given mission on this earth, which is to glorify God in everything you do, in every place that you go, in every activity that's, that's available to you that you give yourself to, glorify God. I gave us a strong challenge this morning in the area of our families. For those of you who are parents or maybe grandparents who, who are rearing and raising your children, that we would establish right priorities in our lives, that we would lead our families courageously, that we would live our lives courageously for the glory of God. So that's what I leave you with this morning. Will you surrender your life, everything about your life, the times you let go of the wheel, as well as the times when you've walked faithfully in obedience to the Lord, may it all be given to Christ for his glory, for his honor, for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we're indeed thankful for the story.